go ahead and take out your Bibles. Open up your Bibles. We're in the book of Psalms as we're going through our series, Songs for Our Heart. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 11 and 12 tonight. While y'all are turning there, let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight. And Lord, as we gathered in worship, we, we, we give you our heart, we gave you our emotion, um, we, get, we, we come to glorify you and worship you, and Father, now we want to sit at your feet, we want to hear what you have to say to us. As we read your word, Father, we just pray that your spirit would give us understanding, that you would give us the courage to live out what your word tells us, Father. Lord, increase our faith because we know that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. We ask for all this in Jesus' name, amen. Title for the message tonight is Faith Over Fear. Faith Over Fear. And I think it's pretty fitting, especially for the times that we live in. And as we're gonna see is we don't live in unique times because the psalmist who's writing this was experiencing the very same things that we go through. Now, one thing that we do have is on this side of it, we have the cross and we have the gospel of Christ that's shared. Many times, however, as the gospel is being presented and shared, the idea happens, hey, my life is falling apart. All, I have all these problems. I have all this going on. I, I constantly have these issues and that issues. And, and they say, well, you just need to give your life to Christ and then everything will be great. And what we end up having is something along the lines of the gospel mixed with the American dream. And that just doesn't happen. It doesn't jive well together. Um, you give your life to Christ for forgiveness and salvation, your life is not going to be problem-free. If you got problems in your life and your life is filled with trouble, come to Jesus, but don't believe that your problems are necessarily going to go away. And you go, well, then why would I come to Jesus? Because here, here's the promise. Jesus is the solution. He never promised to give us a problem-free life, but he did promise us one thing. And every time I share this verse, I tell you, this is the verse nobody has underlined in their Bible. In John 16, 33, he says, I've told you things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in the world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. And I want you to look at that verse and I want you to see that that hard truth that you will have suffering and how the Lord sandwiched it between two great promises. Jesus says, in me, you will have peace. You're gonna have suffering in this world. But then he says, be courageous. Those bookends that surround the marching orders are the reality of what our life will be like. In Christ, we'll have peace. In the world, we'll have suffering. It is not our best life now. It is not every day Friday. It's the reality of it. We will have trials and tribulation and suffering as we walk in this world. And it reminded me of what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 14, 22 it's talking about the strengthening of the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. The encouragement is this. We have to continue in faith. These things are necessary to enter the kingdom of God. But Jesus has overcome them, and if you are in Jesus Christ, you will not be overcome because in him we are more than conquerors. And we will one day inherit the kingdom. The time is not yet, but it is coming. And so we have to continue in faith in the midst of trials and troubles. We have to have faith over fear. And so I want us to turn to Psalm 11 and 12. I want us to take a look at this and learn from David how we walk in faith and not in fear. So starting in Psalm 11, 1, David writes, he says, I've taken, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? For look, the wicked string bows, 
And they put their arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne is in heaven. His eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright will see his face. Psalm 12, he continues, he says, Help, Lord, for no faithful one remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. They lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. They say, there we go. They say through our, to- through our tongues we have power. Our lips are our own. Who can be our master? Because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. You, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. The wicked prowl all around, and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. There's several ways, as we go through these, that I see David showing us how to walk in faith and not in fear. Because in these times and in these days, the tendency is we could be provoked to live in fear and thus having to walk in fear. The Lord, the reason why we give our life to Jesus Christ is not only for salvation, but because he's promised us life in him. And we can traverse in this world and still do it in faith. But it requires several things. Number one what I see is David had to choose. David had to choose. We all have to choose. Look at the first three verses. David writes, he says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, escape to the mountains like a bird? Look, the wicked string bows and they put arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The historical setting of the psalm is unknown. It is believed that this is one of those times where David was fleeing from the king as uh, he was anointed king, but King Saul was still on the throne. And you know how David was. He wasn't going to touch the Lord's anointed. He knew better than that. He's like, if the Lord wants me to be king, he'll make me a king. If he doesn't want me to be king yet, then it won't happen yet. So instead, the king orders David's life. He says, you know what? I don't want this guy around anymore. And so David finds himself in what seems to be a desperate situation. His life's in danger. I can't imagine a greater time of fear in life than to know that your life is in danger from one whom you once served and whom once celebrated you. Remember that David is the one who killed Goliath when Saul and and his entire army of Israelites were afraid. The temptation to flee from danger challenges his confidence in God. Now, what I picture here, because it doesn't exactly say what's going on, what I picture here is a couple of things. Maybe David is receiving advice from another person, maybe one of his close friends and whatnot. They're, they're saying, hey, you know what? It's, it's kind of hairy right here. Let's, let's run away. Let's just escape. Or perhaps David is more like me, and in the face of challenge and danger and everything, you get that voice that pops up and says, hey, this isn't going to be fun. Let's get out of here. We, sh- we should just run. We, if, we, if we leave now, then it's like we were never here. Maybe many of you have that same inner voice that speaks up, that voice that says, look, there's danger. Get out of here. And it's that that run away from troubles, that that voice that speaks, that says this is too much, this is too hard, this is too dangerous. 
the comforting thing to do is to leave, to quit, run away, stay safe. A lot of us, when it gets to be hard in our walk of faith, inside we, we say, you know what, God, I can't, I can't do this. I can't follow. I can't do that. And our, and our faith in God becomes less than whatever it is that we're afraid of. And the best thing to do with voices like that is to follow the example of David. You have to make a choice. You have to choose. And David chose to respond in faith. David says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. And that indicates a choice that is willful and of his own volition. Choosing to take refuge in the Lord. Choosing to trust his safety and his shelter in the Lord. And as the voice says, hey, let's go flee to the mountains. I, I just picture David going, that sounds like a good psalm later. He says, I lift my eyes towards the mountains. Where does my help come from? Now it begs the question, who or what are we putting our trust in? There's many things today that are vying for our trust, aren't they? Many people promising us, hey, if, if you go with me, I'll lead you to the promised land of, you know, a free society. If you go with us, we'll, we'll lead you to the safety of never having to worry about getting sick ever again. You know, it's, it, it's the polemics here. But here's the thing. We have to understand that to choose what we'll put our trust in is not a one-time deal. We may choose to have our confidence in God for one thing and later choose to respond in fear. But what we're being exhorted to do, I believe, tonight is we need to make that choice all the time to trust in the Lord. It is moment by moment, one trial or trouble to the next. And it's necessary to point out, it's not how much trust you have either. A lot of us think that, oh, I have problems because I can't trust God enough. What did Jesus say? The faith of a mustard seed. And you can say to this mountain, move over here and it'll be moved. You know, mountains in, in scripture are usually seen as barriers. They're seen as um, obstacles that are difficult, if not impossible, to get over. He says, if you have a small amount of faith, like a mustard seed, you could say, move to this mountain and it'll move. Saying that obstacle that's in your way will move. Not saying we can actually say, hey, Franklin Mountains, I don't like you over there. Let's go over here. That ain't gonna happen. But when we respond in faith, whatever obstacle we're facing all of a sudden becomes less than an obstacle. So it's not how much trust we put in, it's how trustworthy is what we are trusting in. Great faith is only a value when we put our faith in something worthy of our faith. And so David has chosen to trust in the Lord and as he says, I have chosen to trust in the Lord, look at his response. He's, he repudiates the temptation or the suggestion, the very thought of fleeing to the mountains. He's, he's all, I have taken refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, flee? And this is my, we might need to practice some self-talk. I have put my faith and trust in the Lord. Why am I choosing to run away? Why do I want to run? Why do I want to turn now? Fight or flight is our body's natural response when faced with difficult situations. Why flee, though, when you can trust? The choice of fleeing defies our faith in God, and so we have to choose to have faith in God. The next thing that happens is we see the description. It says, for look. And I see this in two different ways. This could either be David still talking and his inner self, you know, where we have all those conflicts of who's going to rule our life, what are we going to listen to, what choice are we going to make, or it's, you know, the voice of the outside saying, he's not listening to me, I better convince him a little bit more that he needs to run away, and so it's that, it's that voice still, and it says, the wicked string bows and put arrows on bowstrings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. It's like that voice saying, the wicked are actively attacking the upright, Oh my gosh, the world's coming apart. The wicked are attacking the upright. Look at it. To be righteous is not cool because they're after us. But I don't want to be wicked because that's even worse. 
It's a story of all humanity, isn't it? The history of humanity. The wicked attacked the righteous. The very first murder committed against Abel was because Abel was righteous. And God accepted him. The bows and the arrows may indicate physical attack, but I also know in the scriptures that bows and arrows can also speak of any attack whether it's slander, whether it's somebody tarnishing your name, whether it's somebody coming against you uh, verbally. And that's hard to deal with also. How many of us can stand strong in our faith when they come against us? I mean, look at the people who took a stand throughout history. As soon as they took a stand, it's like, oh, they're a heretic. Or they go, oh, they're just trying to defy the government. And a lot of times the church was not only complicit, but sometimes the instigator to say, hey, government, guess what? This guy's kind of crazy. He's standing against you. You need to go get him. Or give us the, uh, the opportunity to, you know, hold these trials, these inquisitions. And what it talks of is this war that's been raging through the ages of the wicked and the righteous, good versus evil. It's a spiritual war. It was going on before the history of humanity started. It's still being fought. The question is this. Have we entered that fight? Have we engaged in that spiritual warfare? Or are we content to sit on the side and just complain about how the war is going? We see that the uh, wicked have the upper hand right now. We say, oh man, that's terrible. And we sit and we do nothing for the side of righteousness. We say, oh, it, it, it's okay. We'll, we'll just wait until, until later. Then the voice continues on. It says, they shoot from the shadows. Other translations may say they shoot from behind. What, what it means is they attack when you're not looking. Uh, it's an attack that you can't see coming. Perhaps it's a method of, ha, have you ever tried to manipulate yourself into understanding that the choice that you want to make is the wrong one, and so you're trying to... Man- Look, you can't even see where the attack's going to come from. It's better to just run away because y- you don't even know what's going to happen. So if you don't know, you might as well run. And so if you can't see the attack and you have to cover... You- it's a terrible thing when we fear that which we can't even see or that which isn't even there. It's, it- if you let your imagination run wild to set you to fear, you can become afraid of almost anything. And here's the thing, sometimes we walk in fear because like it says here, the foundations are destroyed. If we look around in the times that we're living in, it looks like the very foundations of society are crumbling. The, the very things that we once took for granted as everybody accepting as true and righteous and is suddenly wiped away, all of a sudden it's, there's no longer anything that's known as truth. We're not a postmodern society. We're a post-truth society. We have gone beyond anything of having any truth. It doesn't even matter what's true anymore. Now all that matters is what people feel. And that's why we have certain things along the lines of the LGBTQ. We can't, we can't talk against that because they might become offended because while well, the truth is what God's word says, how he set natural order. But they say, I don't feel that way. We can't throw out truth just because of how we feel. And so we see the foundations are destroying, the foundation of good overcoming evil, the foundation that evil doesn't prosper. We see evil rising up and prospering all over the place. We see all sorts of things that used to hold society together and we're watching it crumble. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I can go, wow, it's all over. A lot of times the Lord has to be like, okay, come back from the edge. We're not there yet. But truthfully, if you think about the the age of time and the church age, what we have done is pretend this is the cliff, and once we go over the cliff, all of society has fallen off and the end of things has come. So what we did was at the cross, we came running head forth, and when Jesus was resurrected and all other things were fulfilled up until the rapture, we came to the edge and we started going this way. 
And all it takes is a little push and we're over the edge and the end of all things comes. The judgment comes, the end of days comes, the rapture comes and the Lord will set things right through his judgment. Here's what we have to do. Don't choose to escape. Don't choose to hide from problems and troubles. Rather, we need to choose to take refuge in the Lord. Our refuge is in the Lord. We can't escape. And Jesus didn't want us to escape. If Jesus wanted us to escape, he would have never prayed in John 17. Oh, I have two here. <laughs> the second, this, come on, what's going on here? <laughs> Go back, there we are. What the righteous can do is choose to engage rather than escape the war. David asked the question, what can the righteous do? Have you ever felt like that? Everyone is doing wrong. I'm the only one doing right. What can one person do? What difference can I make? And I'm always reminded of this story of, that the, uh, this old man told this little boy. Or I'm sorry, this little boy told this old man. This little boy's running down the seashore, and he's picking up starfish and throwing them back in the water. But the seashore is covered with them, littered with them. And, and the old man goes, hey, boy. What you doing? I'm throwing the starfish back in. He's like, how can you possibly get all the starfish back in? What difference are you going to make? And as he picked up a starfish and he threw it in, he says, made a difference to that one. Sometimes we get so caught up in thinking we have to end the whole thing as opposed to just hold fast our position. And we need, to, we need to start doing that because as I said, Jesus didn't want us taken out of the world. He prayed in John 17. He says, I am not praying to you, Father, that you should take them out of the world. He doesn't want us to escape. Christians are not supposed to be escapists, figuring out a way to live in such a Christian bubble that we never touch the world whatsoever. He says, this is what I pray. Protect them from the evil one. And I don't know about you, but for myself, when I hear Christ praying a prayer to his father as the only begotten son of God, I feel like God wants to answer that prayer. And so if he prayed for our protection as we engage, I feel like it's going to be okay. So number one, we have to choose. Number two, we have to change. We have to change. We're going to look at the next four verses. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord, his throne, is in heaven. His eyes watch, his gaze examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous, but he hates the wicked and those who love violence. Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright will see his face. So after making the choice to walk in faith and take refuge in the Lord, David then changed. And I want you to know this has nothing to do with changing your heart, changing your character, changing your person. None of that can we do on our own. That's all God. That's all God. As we, as we fill our minds with God's word, he changes those things. But what we can do is change what we focus on. We can change our perspective. You see, when David was talking about all that was happening around him, he was looking horizontally. He's just looking on the, on the horizontal plane. And instead of looking only horizontally, when he chose to have faith, what he did was he started looking up. And he looked from the vertical plane. And David starts off and he says, as he looks up, what does he say? He says, the Lord is in his holy temple. And then he says, the Lord, his throne is in heaven. I'm looking around over here and I'm like, man, it's crazy here. But when I look up, I remember, wait a minute. God is so much higher and so much more above than all this. What am I worried about? And the connotation of his statements is that the Lord is still in his holy temple. The Lord is still 
on his throne. No matter what has happened, no matter what anyone says, no matter what anyone believes, God is still in his holy temple. His throne is still in heaven. God has not gone anywhere, and no one has forced him to vacate his throne. His eyes watch, and his gaze examines everyone. David says, the Lord sees all. He's still in heaven. He's still on his throne. What a great perspective. Because if we just look out at the horizontal, and that's all we focus on, it is depressing. It is saddening. It is crazy to look out and see what's going on. But that's why we have to start looking up and say, I take refuge in you, God, and oh, I stopped looking at this, and I'm looking up now. Psalms 37.7 says, Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by one who prospers in his way, by the person who carries out evil plans. Don't be agitated by that. Psalm 46.10, and I put it in the New King James because I just like the way it says, as we're thinking that God is still on the throne, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. If we're not seeing him exalted now, that means it's yet to come. But it is coming because he promised it. He said it's going to happen. And so David decided to contrast his problem on earth with the high and lifted position of the Lord God in heaven. And I would admonish each and every one of us, if we want to get above our problems, we need to contrast our problem with the one who is in heaven. If you've ever wondered what perspective looks like, imagine all your problems are here in your thumb. And tonight, when you go outside and you see that moon in the sky, put your thumb right here and tell me if you can see the moon. But when you take your thumb away from your eye and you're looking at the moon, you start to realize, my thumb is pretty small compared to that. It's exactly what happens when you take your eye off your problem you put your eyes on heaven, your problems aren't so big anymore. And so the fearful ask, what can the righteous do? And David would say the righteous can change their point of view, their perspective of the problem. Go from the earthly to the heavenly. Trust the real source of government. Our earthly governments are going to fail Society's going to fail along with it. As much as I hate to have to say that, God has already said, society's going to crumble. It's going to fall apart completely. It's going to come apart at the seams. Our laws here in America, our country here in America, the way that we have set up our civilization here in America is dependent upon a people desiring to be righteous. The moment the people want to be evil instead, it's going to fall apart, and we're watching it. And I'm not a doomsday sayer. I'm just saying God has already said it's going to happen. So if I declare that it's going to happen, all I'm doing is agreeing with God. We change our perspective by spending time with the Lord. When we spend time with our problem... That's when we get the thumb in front of our face and our problem blocks our view of God. But when we pray and we focus on God, our problem melts away from view and faith begins to assure our hearts. Here's a true perspective. A true perspective of things is that nothing is out of God's control because he's the one who's sovereign over all. There's no one who is ever going to usurp God from his throne And I'm going to give you a hint. If you go to the end of the book and you read all the way in the back, what you're going to find out is God wins. It's not even a struggle. He's just long-suffering because he doesn't desire any to suffer and to be punished. He wants all to come to salvation. I'm not saying all will, but he still wants it. David gives us another answer also. What can the righteous do? Well, they can change their view about the whole situation. View your troubles and trials as testing. The Lord, or I'm sorry, David says that the Lord examines the righteous. Examine, if you shorten it down to four letters, 
It's the worst thing that you ever had to do in school. Exam. It's a test. David says, the Lord examines the righteous. Tests. He refines. And Peter picks up on this in his epistle. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. That's the good news. Then he goes and he says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed when? Today, right now, the last time. We have a period that we have to go through before it happens. I'm not saying nobody's saved right now. Right now, you have to understand how God works. God is in what I like to view as eternity now. We live inside time, and so there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. God lives outside of time, so all there is is is. He says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. Why? So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've shared this before, but if you don't know how gold is refined, I am not a refiner. I am not even a gold miner. I have no gold. But I have learned that when you refine gold, what you do is you heat it up. And as you heat it up, it, it becomes molten. And there's this ugly stuff that starts to float to the top. They call that dross. And what you do is you skim that off the top because that's all the impurities. Well, to make gold more fine than it is now, you have to heat it. And then when the dross comes up, you scrape it off. But then you've got to heat it more. So you turn up the fire. You turn up the trial. You turn up the testing. And more of that dross floats to the surface. That's what God is doing in our life as these tough things, as these trials, as these things that test our very character and our very trust in God. It brings up all those impurities in who we are that he wants to skim off the top and take. And you know how he knows when he's done refining gold? The refiner does it until he sees his reflection. You remember the promise from God that we have all been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? That's what God is trying to do. He is making us all into the image of his son and he will continue to do it until his son is reflected in us. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith. That's the salvation of our souls. So a loving God tests, but you know what else he promises? That as he tests us, as he raises that fire, as that heat intensifies, we're like, God, but what happens if you destroy me? Well, here's the thing that the refiner also doesn't do. He never leaves that fire. He has to stay there to make sure he doesn't ruin the gold. Our Father is with us through the fire. And we have great promises like what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we are not abandoned. We're struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Lord examines everyone, as a matter of fact. David just liked to point out that he, he tests the righteous. The Lord examines everyone. The righteous get tested and refined. The wicked, however, the Lord examines. And when the wicked is there, the Lord hates. The Lord decides to judge. David even says, scorching wind will be their cup. 
We live in El Paso. So I don't have to make a too vivid description of this, but when we're in the midst of summer and you know how that wind hits and it's 110 degrees outside and you're like, man, I feel like I just opened up the oven or I feel like there's a uh, hairdryer full blast in my face. Well, imagine something like 100 million times worse than that. That's what it's going to be like in the judgment time. And we might, we might start to want to maybe rise up a little bit and go, ha, that's what they deserve because they're so wicked. But I would caution us against that because there's many times throughout Scripture that God says he does not delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23, the Lord speaking through the prophet says, do I take pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, I don't take pleasure when he, instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? The prophet repeats that later in, in chapter 33. He says, tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? That's the Lord's plea. He's like, why are you choosing wickedness? I want you to be saved. I want you to repent. I want you to turn and turn to me. This is why it says that in heaven, there is more rejoicing over one sinner who's saved than for anything else. It's the true miracle of God to take a wicked person who had turned from his ways and make him completely declare him holy and righteous, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to choose, we have to change, we have to call. We have to call. Verse 1 of Psalm 12, David says, Help, Lord. Such a simple prayer. Some of the most effective prayers that you will find in Scripture, that you will find that happen, are usually the shortest. Sometimes we feel like we're heard for our many words. Jesus spoke about that. I'm not saying that we have to spend any less time in prayer, but sometimes we, we feel like, oh, I don't, I don't feel like I prayed enough. The Lord's not going to hear. He's not going to answer. He's not going to honor. But sometimes we're in such a pickle that we're in such a trouble that sometimes all we can say is help. Remember when Peter said to Jesus, hey, Jesus, tell me to come out there. Because Peter knew in his mind, if Jesus tells me to come out there, I can do it. So Jesus says, come here. Peter gets up and he gets out of the boat and he starts walking on water. He goes, oh my gosh, I'm walking on water. I can't walk on, and he starts to sink. And what does he say? Lord, help. Same prayer. Jesus reaches down and picks him up. Sometimes we just need to know that we can call out and say, Lord, help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign that we know who to go to. So David says, help, Lord. No one faithful remains. The loyal have disappeared from the human race. He's not dramatic. He says, they lie to one another. They speak with flattering lips and deceptive hearts. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks boastfully. They say, through our tongues we have power. Our lips are our own and who can be our master? So David bemoans the absence of the faithful and the loyal among mankind. It reminds me of the prophet um, Elijah. Oh God, you don't know how bad it is. I'm the only one left who serves you and fears you, Lord. That's when God kind of said, um, Elijah, let me share some information with you. I have 7,000 who have yet bowed their knee to Baal. But sometimes in the midst of our trouble, because we're not looking up and we're not looking you know, with the right perspective, we used to go, oh, I'm the only one. And we feel lost and lonely. And, and that usually happens. I know for myself, the tendency, my flesh says, don't get around anybody else when you're having problems because where I stand, where I'm at, how God is using me, if I tell people I have problems, they're going to be like, oh, there's no hope for me. 
But here's the truth. I'm no different than any of y'all. What I need more than anything and what the Spirit always leads me to is you need to get around brothers and sisters in Christ because we are called to carry one another's burdens, not to be Lone Ranger Christians. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says you need to get off by yourself and just stay by yourself and forget everybody else. Never says that. Throughout the New Testament, what does Christ command for the church? One another, one another, one another. Love one another, carry one another, serve one another. We have to be around each other. That's why everything that happened where the churches were closed and we were all separate, there was a devastation that happened among people. There was a spirit in the air that was no longer a spirit of hope, of faith, or any of that. People started to be downcast, downtrodden, and it started to look bleak. I've shared these stats before, but the ages of 18 to 24 saw an uptick of 800% in suicide when the churches closed their doors. 800%. Here locally in El Paso, we had a few suicides. I don't know about adults, but I do know that in two different high schools, there were three suicides. The culture is steeped in deception and lies. First off, the culture is going to tell everybody, hey, um, if you don't feel like you know who you are, it's because you're not who you're supposed to be. You're actually a, like a, this weird natural mistake. If you don't feel like you're supposed to be a boy, it's okay, you could be a girl. Or vice versa. Or if, if you don't have affections for the opposite sex, it's okay, you can have the same sex. But that does, when we affirm the lies that we feel in ourselves, it doesn't help. It just hides. And the culture is steeped in deception and lies. They lie to one another continuously. We continue this lie when we allow people to, everywhere you go now, when you register for something government-funded, healthcare-funded, uh, through the school, what have you, it says, what's your gender? And then, like, there's a drop-down now. It used to be two choices. Now it's a drop-down. And then on Twitter, did you, uh, for those of you that are on Twitter, you can choose your own pronouns. It doesn't matter what you choose. You can make up pronouns. They, they don't even have a set on pronouns. And, and I don't do this to pick on, on that necessarily. That's just what's at the front of the culture right now. There's a whole bunch of other things that we deceive and we lie about, that the ends justify the means, that that's just the way we do business. Working in the corporate world, I saw way too much of that where the uh, higher up said, hey, um, we didn't pay the tariffs on this. We need you to cross some stuff. And we're like, um, that's not allowed. Oh, that's okay. Everybody does it. They just expect you to do it. And guess what? They would never bail you out if you got caught. Can you imagine being in a culture and society that David is describing? That there are many who speak callously and deceptively? That you can't trust that what you are hearing, the truth, that the truth is being suppressed for an official narrative that's being spoken? That places of honesty and integrity all of a sudden gave all that up so that they could just put out whatever sells? Dignified, honored positions of great authority, voice, and power are now corrupt. We can't choose, we, we can no longer trust those who are in power to do the, the official duties of the offices? What if we're in a society where those who share the truth are labeled as radical, the same type of radical of what they say of radical Islam? They're labeled as conspiracy theorists and they're silenced on all major media platforms. Canceled and otherwise discredited. But we all know that's going on today, isn't it? That's what David's describing here. It would seem like the wicked are the only ones left. We feel like they're, how do we have a voice when we're shut down on social media, regular media, and everywhere else? And, and I'm going to mention him by name because it happened to him, but I'm not saying that I agree with everything he ever did, and I'm not saying that he like someone to do and put him up on a pedestal. But Trump was taken off of Twitter because they didn't like what he had to say. 
But there's others who are taken off also. Uh, I'm going to forget his name, but he's the guy that runs the Drudge Report. He was recently removed from social media. He's the one that would write up reports on the things that are happening in Washington. The voice, once, the, the voice we once had no longer is being tolerated to be heard. And so if you found yourself surrounded by those who repudiate truth, it doesn't matter what truth, it's all truth for the sake of feelings, like I said. All of society corrupted and untrustworthy. What could the righteous do? We have to know who to call out for, for help. Because as much as they think they're in power, they're not. We have to remember, help, Lord. They're guilty of lies and deception, blatant, outright lies. They're also guilty of the harmless lies, the half-truths, the exaggerations, broken promises. All of us are too. I can almost say with 100% certainty that all of us in this room could be labeled as liars when we throw in white lies, half-truths, exaggerations, and broken promises. But it's okay. And I'll, and I'll tell you why in a minute. David is saying that they're guilty of flattery. This is insincere complimenting. Flattery is not praise. Flattery differs from praise because flattery ascribes virtues foreign to a person's character for the sake of manipulation for sinister selfish motives. It says that there's deceptive hearts. That word deceptive in the original language literally says a heart and a heart. They're double-hearted. And Spurgeon, citing uh, Thomas Adams, said this, a heart for church and a heart for change. A heart for Sundays, another for working days. One for the king, one for the pope. A man without a heart is a wonder, but the man with two hearts is a monster. What did Jesus say? can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. All we can do is respond in faith. Faith calls on the Lord. Faith trusts the Lord. David called out to the Lord. He said, Lord, cut off all the flattering and all the boasting. Cut out all the lies. Cut out all the deception. If you have an, an issue, you're like, I don't know what's true these days. Call out to the Lord and say, Lord, give me discernment. Give me discernment to see the truth. Give me discernment to see through the lies. Because right now, I guarantee you, the entire world is starting to be enveloped more and more in the deception of the evil one because the day of deception where everybody is completely deceived is coming. Call on the Lord to navigate the treachery of the tongue in others and even the tongue in ourselves that we would not deceive ourselves. Because we can deceive ourselves. We can say, oh, there's no hope. Oh, all is lost. Oh, God is just letting me have my do whatever. We lie to ourselves as opposed to responding in faith. And not only do we call out to the Lord, but count on. Count on. That's a fancy way of saying rely on. When you can count on someone, you're like, man, I know they're going to be there. I trust them. David says, because of the devastation of the needy and the groaning of the poor, God says, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will provide safety for the one who longs for it. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. You, Lord, will guard us. You will protect us from this generation forever. The wicked prowl all around and what is worthless is exalted by the human race. We call to the Lord for help because we can count on the Lord to help. We can't count on man. We can't count on man's word. This is why I say that all of us have broken promises because there is a time where we might say, sure, I can do that. But we truly have no power to make anything come forth. We don't have that power. Every single one of us lives in a single moment and we have no control over the next moment. For all you control freaks, I hope I didn't like totally um, scare you there, but we have no control over the next moment. 
And the way life is, is one moment you're here, the next moment you're gone. But God, however, has his throne in heaven still. God says, because of the devastation of the needy, because of the groaning of the poor, he says, I will now rise up and I will provide safety. Trust in those words. You know why? Because God has the power to bring them to pass. God promises the day of deliverance that's coming for the needy and the poor. We count on the promises of God because the words of the Lord are pure words. They're refined like silver. The word words in verse six means the promises. And the word pure means flawless. The promises of the Lord are flawless. They have no error. They have no mistake. Man can't make good faith promises. I will promise you guys a whole lot and I'll fulfill a whole little. And it's not because I have any less desire to fulfill it. It's because I have no power to. That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs 27.1, don't boast about tomorrow. You don't know what a day might bring. James expounded upon this in his epistle. James the apostle, not James our pastor. It says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your whole life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I'll share with you. The Lord showed me that I had zero ability to keep promises. My wife and I, we got married in 2008. We were 27 years old, 28 years old, 27 years old. We told everybody, we're not having kids for two years. Two months later, we found out she was pregnant. Right before our next anniversary, Nico was born. And everybody goes, I thought you said two years. I'm not God. I have my plans, he has his. We make our plans, he laughs. How many of us can raise our hand and say, I've made plans that the Lord has changed? How many of us can say the Lord has made plans and we've somehow changed them? Because he has the power to make his promises come about. And so we can trust in his promises. And this is the Isaiah, I'm sorry, James 4.15, he finishes it off. He says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this. That's why usually when I tell people, hey, I'll see you tomorrow, I'll always add, Lord willing. I'm not trying to be extra spiritual. I'm just trying to remind myself, I have no control all Lord willing because the grass withers the flowers fade but the word of our God remains forever God has kept and preserved his word God will keep and preserve his word this is why this is not in my notes but I'm just going to tell you you want to trust in the Lord's words study prophecy study prophecy there is not a single prophecy in the Bible that has failed to come to pass except for that which has not yet been fulfilled. You want to study really cool prophecy, study the book of Daniel, and then pull out your history book and watch how the Lord spoke through prophecy in that. But just to give you an idea of how God keeps and preserves his word, there was a French atheist, his name's Voltaire. He made claims openly, and he once said, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took the 12 apostles to rear. He wrote that in 50 years, no one would remember Christianity. But in the year he wrote that, the British Museum paid the Russian government $500,000 for a Bible manuscript while one of Voltaire's books was selling in the London bookstalls for eight cents. On top of that, 20 years later, the house in which he penned those words was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and was used to publish and distribute the word of God. 
Voltaire was exalted for a season, but he faded away. The word of the Lord continues on. Jesus told us, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Trust in God's words. Trust in God's words. It says that the Lord will protect us from this generation forever. This wicked generation continually on the prowl, continuing to exalt violence, continuing to, to scoff. This generation that's described in Proverbs 30. Look at Proverbs 30. This, this was written uh, um, a, a long time ago. Proverbs 30 says, there is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. This is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filth. This is a generation, how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks. There is a generation whose teeth are swords, fangs are knives, devouring their press from the land and the needy from among mankind. There is a truth that not only will the Lord guard us from the attacks and the assaults, but it's his word that will protect us from compromise and complicity, being complicit. But we have to have his word. We have to be in his word. If you want to live a life of faith instead of living in fear, these are the things you have to do. Evaluate. Take these things before the Lord. Evaluate. Say, Lord, reveal to me, reveal in my heart these questions. Am I actively and continuing to trust in you? Ask, am I seeking to escape troubles and problems or am I seeking refuge in you in the midst of them? Say, Lord, am I engaged in the battle? Am I engaged in the spiritual war? Or am I content to only complain about how it's going? And then ask, Lord, am I looking only from my horizontal plane? Or am I looking from the vertical? And if I look from the vertical, do I change my perspective in accordance? And finally, ask him this question. Say, Lord, reveal in my heart, whose words carry more weight? Mine? Other people's? Or yours? As he speaks to your heart, the worship team is going to play one last song. I'm going to make an invitation that anybody who needs prayer, anybody who may, the Lord reveals, hey, you've been walking in fear more than faith. Don't leave here going, okay, and I'm good with that. Turn it over to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to walk in faith. No longer do I want to be afraid. Help me to live in faith and not in fear. I'm going to invite you to come forward to pray. And if you've never given your life to Christ before, it's impossible to walk in faith without having faith. Start that journey by placing your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That you can walk in faith, that you can walk in the promise that he's overcome and in him you are an overcomer that nothing in this world will overcome you and finally destroy you. Because the promise of Paul is this, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because Jesus said, he who believes in me, though he shall die, he will live. Heavenly Father, we come before you this night. And Father, as, as we close out this service, I pray that your spirit would just fall down, Lord, and, and, and speak to our hearts, Lord. Speak directly to our hearts. Reveal where we're at, Father God. Give us the strength and courage to say that's me and to admit and to agree with where you say that we're at, Father God. But Father, not so that you can say, see, I knew you were weak of faith, but because you desire to strengthen our faith. You want to purify our faith. 
You want to grow us in faith. Help us to call out and say, Lord, help. That's the promise that we have. That Jesus was given the task that at the last day, all who come to him, he will raise up. So Father, that's where our faith is in. It's in Christ. We see it all falling apart around us, Father, but we know that Christ is coming back. Help us to live in faith until that day where our faith becomes our sight. In Jesus' name, amen.